Hi, Steve Shepard here with Natural Curiosity Project. You know, there's a lot of talk going on about something called the Great Resignation right now. It refers to the fact that people are unexpectedly leaving their jobs in huge numbers, and there are all kinds of attempts out there to explain it. In this episode, I'm going to share my thoughts about the Great Resignation, but within the context of modern technology, which is a connection that I haven't seen anybody else make yet. But after looking at it through the eyes of someone who's been in the tech world now for just over 40 years, I can see a direct and pretty important linkage between the two that says that something is up. Something is happening about how influence and control are both distributed and deployed in modern society and about the role that technology plays. What we're seeing is more profound than what most people realize. If we go back in time to the 1970s, we find that computing, such as it was, was exciting and frankly, kind of primitive. There was very little of the technological elegance that we have today. We had mainframe computers, huge machines in which all of the computing power that an organization might need was concentrated. These things were really big. Between the mainframe itself, the pool of tape drives, the pool of disk drives that were the size of washing machines, and the input-output cabinets that connected the computer to the network, these systems covered a few thousand square feet of raised floor space in the data center. Now, mainframe architecture was both interesting and indicative of the story that I want to tell. Back in the 70s, semiconductors were still relatively new, so computing was unimaginably expensive, tens of millions of dollars for a mainframe. The idea of an individual owning a computer was frankly pretty laughable. Most of us couldn't even conceive of what that meant because we had no context for thinking about how we might even use one. But corporations owned them, and as applications emerged, these corporations amortized the cost of all that hardware and software across hundreds, or in the case of big corporations like the telephone company that I worked for, thousands of employees. These were timeshare systems because everybody's program shared access to the computer in a sort of a round-robin fashion. It's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, and so on. The sharing was accomplished by putting a traffic cop in front of the mainframe to control access to it. It was sort of like the Wizard of Oz. Nobody gets in to see the wizard, not nobody, not know-how. The traffic cop, which was called the front-end processor, or the FEP, decided which request for service got to be passed to the mainframe for processing and for how long. When your time was up, Your program was swapped out, somebody else's program was swapped in, and you went to the back of the queue to wait for your next turn. Now at the other end of this architecture were the human users. They worked at devices called dumb terminals because they had no inherent computing capability in spite of the fact that they looked sort of like a big desktop computer. They were basically a television with a keyboard attached to it. These dumb terminals were attached to a device that was called a cluster controller. It was really a multiplexer, in essence, another traffic cop. But the cluster controller didn't control access to the mainframe. It controlled access to the network connection between itself and the front-end processor, a circuit that typically transmitted data at anywhere from 300 bits per second to a blazingly fast 9600 bits per second. Now, each cluster controller had up to 32 devices connected to it, and they were typically 
connected in four groups of eight devices, with each group made up of seven dumb terminals and a printer. Printers in those days were also very expensive, so nobody had their own. They were shared. Now, before I continue, let's just review real quickly what we've described so far. People sit at dumb terminals in corporate offices, typing whatever they type that requires computing power onto the screen. They might be filling out an order from a customer or recording information for a trouble ticket or processing inventory or doing something related to accounting. Now, those dumb terminals are then connected to a cluster controller that controls access to a shared data circuit. Traffic from the cluster controller, which of course is traffic from all those devices, is sent across the network connection to the front-end processor, which serves as a gatekeeper, controlling access to the precious resources of the mainframe at the top of the hierarchy, the brain. At the bottom, there is no brain, just terminals, dumb terminals. And if you think about it, the structure looks an awful lot like a pyramid, with all the power concentrated up at the top. It's a centralized, top-down, hierarchical model. One decision-maker at the top, hundreds of drones at the bottom. Now, here's the really interesting part. In the days when mainframes were the only computing game in town, if you think about it, that's also what corporations looked like. They were hierarchical, centralized, top-down, with all the power concentrated up at the top. And this isn't anecdotal. When I started working at Pacific Telephone in 1981, there were 14 levels of management between an entry-level manager, called a first level, and the CEO. That's an awful lot of layers. But time passes and things change. And as enlightenment took root in the face of growing competition, Corporations began to get flatter as the need for organizational velocity became more and more urgent. Levels of management began to merge, and the organizational structure began to look less like the Great Pyramid at Giza and more like those squat, flat-top pyramids that we see in Mesoamerica. Now, as this happened, another technological shift took place. Mainframes were still around. But a new player emerged, a computing architecture called client-server. Instead of entire companies sharing access to one or more very expensive mainframes, we began to see the arrival of departmental computing. Advances in semiconductor technology made it possible to build smaller, less expensive computers, sometimes called mini-computers, that could serve the unique needs of individual departments. And new names began to appear. IBM and Amdahl, the manufacturers of mainframes, were still around, but suddenly we began to see machines from Digital Equipment Corporation and Control Data and Hewlett-Packard. But the technological shift was only part of the story. The need for organizational efficiency wasn't the only force behind this ongoing shift. It was also happening because of a desire by work groups within corporations to have a greater degree of control over their computing destiny. As organizations flattened, as they began to push decision-making authority lower in the organization, computing architectures flattened right along with them. Yes, the mainframe was still around, and it still played an important role, but it was no longer required to process every single transaction. Smaller machines could now do that at departmental levels, making the mainframe less relevant and less central to organizational operations. It was a brand new day. 
Now, as we've said, technological art always imitates life, and it didn't stop with the mini-computer. Further advances in silicon continued, and in the early 1980s, we saw the arrival of the personal computer, the PC, and the local area network, or LAN. Now, this was a huge step. First, it put a standalone computer in the hands of every user. A chicken in every pot, a computer on every desk. Second, it connected those computers to a high-speed, very low-cost local network, typically something like 10 megabit per second Ethernet, in a peer-to-peer architecture, which meant that every user on the LAN was at the same hierarchical level as everybody else on the LAN. It represented the ultimate flattening of the computing world, and it happened in lockstep with the evolution that was going on in the corporation as it, too, got flatter and flatter and flatter. During those days when the PC started to appear, there were all kinds of articles in the press about a new way of running companies. Hewlett Packard was recognized for the fact that every employee in the company worked in cubicles instead of in private offices, including, by the way, Bill Hewlett and David Packard. Tom Peters published his seminal book, In Search of Excellence, in which he prodded companies to embrace the idea of management by walking around and the importance of collaboration and peer-to-peer communication to maintain competitive position and contextual relevance with employees and customers alike. Once again, art imitates life. Flat computing architectures, flat corporations, distributed decision-making. So, what came next? Well, this was the era of Generation X, a generation characterized by individualism, entrepreneurial behavior, self-reliance, and independent thought. Think about the founders of Silicon Valley. That's who we're talking about. The personal computer became truly personal, and the Macintosh proved it. And as we moved into the early 90s, we saw the emergence of the Personal Digital Assistant, or PDA, the Apple Newton, may it rest in peace, and the Palm Pilot. This combination of independent, highly customizable technology with independent workers and thinkers made this evolution indicative of the beginning of a shift of power and decision-making authority all the way down to the individual employee level. Now, remember where we started, where all the power was concentrated up at the top of the house or in the mainframe? Well, as you can see, those days have now ended. The corporation has essentially been turned on its head, just like computing architectures. Well, technology continued to march forward. Thanks to Moore's Law, computer and memory chips continued to double in speed and capacity and have in price every 18 months or so, which made it possible to massively increase the density of power and storage on a single chip. As a result, miniaturization happened, and we saw the arrival of Blade servers, entire powerful computers on a card not much bigger than a first-class envelope that could be inserted into a rack in a data center, along with hundreds or even thousands of other blades, creating an unimaginably dense concentration of computing power. The rise of the data center began. Meanwhile, network technologies advanced making it possible now to cheaply deliver tens of megabits per second to not only businesses, but to homes and the recently arrived mobile devices. 
programming languages popped up like Python, which made it easy to create applications that could be hosted in a data center and accessed simultaneously by millions of users. This was a new model of human-computer engagement. We call it cloud. Massive computing power concentrated in a central location and then accessed by large numbers of users. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Remember our mainframe architecture? If you do, then it should occur to you that this shift to the cloud, to dependence on a central data center, is in a lot of ways a step backward. Today, users, the humankind, use their mobile devices and personal computers to gain access to free cloud-resident applications. Think Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Instagram, Google. But they're not free, because a new currency has emerged with which we pay for these services. It's called personal data. And because these free apps are concentrated in corporate data centers, so is our personal data, which means that whoever offers the free app and makes it available via a data center, they also have the ability to capture a lot of information about us, including our location, what we buy, where we shop, how we drive, because the act of using the app requires us to generate that data and we freely share it. It's used for targeted advertising, but in the wrong hands. It can also be a very powerful information-based weapon, as we've seen in the last few years. And that is a problem. I hope you understand my point. With this particular evolutionary stage, power and influence shift away from the individual user and back toward the top of the pyramid. Architecturally, culturally, that's a step in the wrong direction. In response, the next stage is beginning to emerge. Regulatory agencies are beginning to scrutinize the organizations that use this business model, and people are beginning to object to the unfettered use of their personal data. They want more control over how that personal information is used. In Finland, for example, the concept of a data commons is being explored, a model in which all personal data is placed into a commons, a shared space, and each user determines how their data can be used and who has access to it. Art, once again, imitates life. The cloud and the more centralized control-gathering philosophy that it represents is beginning to fade, and a new model now takes the stage. It's called the edge. It's always been well understood that the closer we place the point of service delivery to the consumers of that service, the better the user experience will be. But there's a lot more to it than that. With the move from the cloud to the edge, what we're also seeing is a shift of power back toward the individual user. It's happening for several reasons. One I've already mentioned, the need to deliver a superior customer experience. But it's also a reaction to the perceived gathering of power by organizations at the expense of the individual, and in today's climate, that doesn't go over very well. But there are other reasons for edge migration. One is simply because we can and because we have to. Today's mobile devices are orders of magnitude faster and more capable than the mainframes we talked about earlier. An IBM System 370, which was a typical system of the time, could have up to four 100 megabyte, you caught that right, megabyte? They could have up to four 100 megabyte hard drives and as much as 128 kilobytes of internal memory or RAM. 
My mobile phone has 512 gigabytes of RAM. That's 1,200 times more capacity than a mainframe. And with 4G and now 5G wireless networking and global seamless connectivity, I can do pretty much anything anywhere. I don't need the cloud. I've got the edge. And of course, applications are now emerging for which an edge-based model is frankly ideal, including autonomous vehicles or businesses that don't need access to the cloud because they do all of their necessary processing locally. Medical applications, smart agriculture, visualization apps, engineering and architecture, all of these can work brilliantly at the edge without access to a centralized cloud. Now, the cloud still has a role, but it's no longer real-time. It's now being relegated to the role of analytics and learning, neither of which requires real-time processing. This evolution makes me think of a quote from Tom Friedman's really great book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree. If you haven't read it yet, you need to. In the quote, which I've shortened here, he says, Microchip Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or MIDS, is the defining political disease of the globalization era. It is usually contracted by companies, or countries in his case, that fail to inoculate themselves against changes brought about by the microchip and the democratizations of technology, finance, and information, which created a much faster, more open, and more complex marketplace with a whole new set of efficiencies. I mean, isn't that what we're actually seeing right now? Now, Friedman goes on to say that companies with mids tend to be those that are run on Cold War corporate models, where one or more people at the top hold all the information and make all the decisions, and all the people in the middle and the bottom simply carry out those decisions using only the information they need to do their jobs. The only known cure for mids is the democratization of decision-making and information flows and the deconcentration of power in ways that allow more people in a company to share knowledge and innovate faster. He ends with this. Mids can be fatal for those companies that do not get appropriate treatment in time. And that brings us back to our initial mention of the Great Resignation. Once again, art imitates life. The current state of computing and network technologies makes it possible for individuals to take power back from those organizations that would control them and who increasingly see personal data as their fungible source of economic advantage. The Great Resignation is really a great reckoning. It's a wake-up call for companies, governments, and political systems. It's a call to action for those that would build profits on the backs of people with whom those profits aren't fairly shared, particularly when those profits derive from data that they use but do not own. Technology is a powerful equalizer, and today, as we watch the cloud-to-edge migration happen, it's being wielded to shift the power back to a place where it's shared properly among company and employees. The dazzle of technology often creates enormous amounts of human hubris, as we've seen, for example, with AI. Will technologies like robotics and machine learning and artificial intelligence replace people in the workplace? Well, some of them, of course. Some jobs always disappear because they could be done more cost-effectively or more accurately by technology. They always have. 
But as I look across the sea of help-wanted signs in the windows of almost every business I pass, I can't help but think that businesses need people because businesses are people. Technology does a lot of wonderful things, but technology in and of itself often falls short because it's just a tool. The only thing more powerful than a technology whose time has come is technology coupled with the will of people who want a change whose time has come. The migration to the technological edge is another democratization, a shift of influence and control to the people. Art, in this case technological, imitates life. And that's the way it should be. The people are making a clear statement. There's an imbalance in the balance sheet, and we won't allow it any longer. Compensate us properly, treat us as valued organizational assets, as the human capital we are, or we walk. And all the technology in the world, intelligent or otherwise, won't fill that gap. 